everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at LOPC. And what a privilege it is to join together, to worship together, to gather together in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are thrilled you're here. And so we want to offer a warm welcome to you. And if you're watching via the live stream, we're glad you're joining us. Uh, if you're a first-time visitor, we hope you got our goodie bag. It allows you an opportunity to get to know us a little bit, as well as giving you, I think, some pretty nice swag, and you can enjoy that as well. If you're sitting on the end of an aisle, if you would do us the favor of getting the friendship pad started, it lets us know who's here, pass it down uh, to your neighbor, and we would love to know who's here. Several announcements. That sounded loud all of a sudden. Did that sound <laughs> loud to anybody besides? I jumped. Anybody else jump besides me? A <laughs> couple different announcements I want to uh, make you aware of. In two weeks, you saw the video of the missions organization, Here's Life Africa. They are doing a tremendous, tremendous work of what the church ought to be doing, sharing the gospel. And so we are going to be privileged to have as our guest speaker, Bishop Dr. Stanley Hote, who is the director of Here's Life Africa, talk about how the providence of God works. He is happening to be here and come through Lake Oconee. And so he will be here on Friday evening, September 30th, to share with us. And we'd like to invite you. It's going to be a fun evening, a fellowship, just gathering together. There'll be some light refreshments. We would love to have you uh, participate in that. Also, I want to make you aware of the history book that is still, you can still sign up for that. It documents the early history of LOPC. Mary Ann Johnson did such a beautiful, beautiful job. This, I've had the kind of the honor of seeing the book. It is phenomenal. And so we would love to have you sign up and do that. And we are getting ready. We've been talking about home fellowship groups and Sunday schools up and going. Different things are started. We're getting ready to kick off one of our discipleship ministries. And I say that because it's different than just a class. It's different than just a home fellowship group. It's called Life on Life. And I'm going to call, I, I like this. This is just fun. Welcome Lou and Sue. See, I've been waiting all week to be able to do that, to have Lou Tepper and Sue Burmeister share a little bit with you about that. This is live. We're good. Uh, Sue and I are, are here to uh, just introduce to you uh, Life on Life Ministry. It's a relatively new ministry in our church, and uh, it's an international ministry. It's actually in 14 different countries. Uh, it began in Perimeter Church in Atlanta, and we were kind of uh, trained there a few years ago. Um, but it is a group, it are groups of four to five um, men or women who meet weekly. And the, the dual purpose is to uh, learn more about the gospel in lessons that we have each week, uh, but also to share our lives as well. And I think that's truly the unique part of this ministry. Um, I, I committed my life to Christ in 1965, and I can tell you I've never, I've never been part of a ministry that has been more meaningful for me because men, I can't speak for women, but men have a hard time getting together and sharing their lives, sharing the good things, the tough things. And I can tell you the best friends that I have in this congregation 
are the men that I have shared my life with all during the course of a year. And uh, so we would encourage you, there's a sign-up list in the back. It, if you sign the list, it does not say that you're committed to um, being part of LOL, but what it does say that you'd like to have one of us just give you a call, explain it to you, and if it fits you, I can tell you, I think it would be a real blessing uh, for you. And now from the women. Yes, women have a lot easier time getting to know one another. Um, <laughs> we don't have any problem with that. But, <laughs> but it is a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, become, I've become very close to these ladies. Um, unfortunately, one of my ladies I am in prayer constantly on right now, Susan Porter. She was part of my group. And I hurt very much for her. And um, so I, but it's that closeness. It's a living life with one another, sharing everything we're going through. And um, the program, there's an accountability portion to it. One thing that it was harder for us to do is maybe evangelize. And there's a component in there that where we do, we've learned to pray for our neighbors, do prayer walks. Lou's wonderful at that, and uh, learned a lot from him. And so, but we also pray for, uh, that one thing I know my ladies do, we've become strong, strong prayer warriors. And um, I would just encourage any woman that's interested in joining the group to please give us a call, sign up, it's wonderful. You will not regret ever being part of it. Thank you. Just a reminder, the sign-up sheets are out there in the narthex. There's always, see, there's always, after the service, plenty for you all to do. So we have several other uh, announcements. Please be in prayer as ESL gets started. Last week was registration. First day of classes is this afternoon, so a reminder to be praying as we have students coming in to learn English as a second language. Very exciting. We are here to worship God. We are here to remember the truth of, of the gospel. We're here to remember the eternal truths of God. God has called us into his presence. As we hear the prelude, let's prepare our hearts for worship.
I don't know about any of you, but I know that my heart, my soul needs to be awakened to the majesty and glory of the triune name of God. I need not only in my joyful moments, but in my down moments to remember that He is God and there is no other. And to think that He has called us into His very presence to commune with Him, to exalt Him, to worship the majesty and glory of His name. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 96. Hear the call that God gives us through His Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Father, we thank You for Your presence dwelling and walking amongst us. And we pray that we would bless Your holy name. We invoke Your presence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to join with us that we may glorify You, exalt You, and be caught up in the glory and majesty of Your name. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing the great hymn of the faith, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Our need of confession this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses, verse 13. And in a way, what the prophet is doing here as the mouthpiece of God is he's giving a spiritual dynamic of the nature of sin and the nature of how our heart works. So in a way, this is, no matter what, let's just take the sin of lying. You don't tell the truth. Whatever that may look like. The, however you want to word it, the psychology, the heart of sin underneath it is never just. It is the behavior, but there's always a sin underneath the sin. And Jeremiah 2.13 describes the sin underneath the sin. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That means when you lie, you have forsaken the truth of God. He's the fountain of living waters. He's the fountain of life. And you've turned away from Him. But that's not all. It says, And you have hewed out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That means there's a reason for the lying. You might be trying to, your well that you're digging is trying to make yourself look good. Trying to have the approval of somebody else. Trying to avoid conflict. There's always a reason underneath the behavior. And God's Word calls us to, in a sense, dig deep. To look for, to examine the reason underneath. That's what it means when the Apostle Paul, for example, tells us to mortify or put to death our sin. It's not just the behavior, but it's what's underneath. So friends, take a few moments. Examine your hearts. Ask the Spirit of God. And know that we do this. If you are in Christ, you already have the status. This is not about getting grace. God's grace is already yours. This is the freedom to examine your life and come clean with God. In a few moments, I'll lead us into our corporate confession of sin that we will pray together. Let's pray. Friends, let us pray together. Lord God, we have given more weight to our successes and our happiness than to your will. We have eaten without a thought for the hungry. We have spoken without an effort to understand others. We have kept silence instead of telling the truth. We have judged others, forgetful that you alone are the judge. We have acted rather in accordance with our opinions than according to your commands. 
Within your church, we have been slow to practice love of our neighbors. And in the world, we have not been your faithful servants. Forgive us and help us to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. And friends, now hear and receive the assurance of pardon. Isaiah writes, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, if you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you are forgiven. Listen to that promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. Let's continue to worship him standing and singing our song of praise, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Thank you. 
I love that song. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. The church ought to be the place where our sole boast is in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Think about it. What should we gain from His reward? We're speechless. There's no answer that we can give. And yet, through His death and resurrection, through His wounds paying our ransom, through His substitution, we can pour out our hearts to Him. We can have communion with Him. We can grow in cultivating intimacy with the living God. And that's the point of prayer. Tim Keller says that one of the things about prayer is it's the place where we learn, where we cultivate the promise of Romans chapter 5, where it says God's love has been shed abroad into our hearts. Think about this promise. Through the Spirit that's been given to us. God's love has actually been poured into our hearts. We possess it. You don't have to go and get it. God's love has been poured into you. And one of the things we do in prayer is we cry out, help me to experience and cultivate more and more of your personal, intimate love. So let's do this as a people. Let's do this now in prayer. Praying together the prayer our Savior taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pour out our hearts to God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for that promise that hope shall not put us to shame, shall not disappoint us, because your love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who you have given to us. And so in love, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting this morning, who are in need of this morning, We cry out on behalf of Susan Porter and her family. Lord, may your intimate, personal comfort be with them. We pray and cry out on behalf of Doug Hesse and Jean, Bill Bonner, Jerry Hill and Brenda, Pard and Maxine Ward, and many, many others. Father, we thank You that Your love is personal. Your love is real. Your love is not a concept. It's not an abstract theory. You are love. And we ask Your forgiveness that we make it just a concept or it stays abstract to us. And our prayer is that Your love would become more and more real, that we would cry out, we would pour out our hearts to You. We would cultivate trust in the living God. And then we'd go out into the world displaying Your love and making Your love known to people who are hiding behind so many things, who are medicating with so many things, who are soothing their soul with so many things. Father, help us to be a church that is for the love of Jesus Christ and not against so many things. Father, thank You that You are a God who sent His Son into the world. Talk about being for us. You didn't wait for us to come to you. You took the initiative and came to us. 
How deep is the Father's love for us? How vast beyond all measure? Lord, we will be spending eternity plumbing the depths of the riches of your love. And I pray in these few moments we have together that, Lord, you would help us to hallow your name by plumbing the riches of the gospel, the depths of your love. Forgive us that we make it a warm, fuzzy concept and we so limit the power that it is, the dynamic that it is. It is the most transformative power on the planet. And Lord, we limit it so much. So Lord, we do pray that you would glorify yourself in a few moments, making known your word to us, quickening our hearts, illuminating our hearts, showing us not only our need of grace, but your provision of grace. My prayer is that you would glorify yourself. That Lord, as we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Lord, we would truly, truly desire your glory above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Wow. You know how we all... You know how we all say we have our preferences and we have different preferences. And I understand we don't live according to our preferences, but that was my preference. <laughs> Take me back to the jazz club in New York City. <laughs> and there's the, see, there's the message. There's Jonah chapter 3, by the, by the way. Whether Jonah was happy about it or not, wait till we get to Jonah chapter 4, who knows? But this light, little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's what he did in Nineveh. I don't think he liked it, but he was obe obedient and did it. And so, wow, what a perfect segue into our time in the Word of God this morning. And so, as I mentioned, where we left off, our beloved prophet, first disobedient, then after a little rendezvous with a fish, and going through, in a sense, a sort of judgment and mercy through judgment and death and resurrection a little bit. The fish vomiting him out. He receives the commission one more time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and call out against it. And now we find he has done that. He's gone. And what we're looking at this morning, how do the Ninevites respond? So our text this morning is Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Thank you that when you speak, you perform what you speak. You do what you say. You act upon what you say. And we pray for how you are going to act upon your word this morning in our hearts and our lives. Give us ears to hear. Open our eyes. Open our minds. Open our hearts to the truth and the reality of your living word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is probably no more important or relevant subject than how to experience God. Truly how to know Him. Not just to know about Him, but to know Him, to experience Him. For every human being is created by God, is built to experience God. We are built for union and communion with God. That is how life is defined. 
Now, this is a relevant topic, and churches respond, and different organizations respond a little differently. It's interesting, as I was preparing this and listening to uh, sermons and stuff, I stumbled upon a couple of examples from sermons on this. So one example was an interview with the guy who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Now, I was not a big reader of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Don't know if any of you all were or not. But in the interview, he said, I realize that people today want spirituality without morality. And because that is what people want today, they want a sense of the soul, they want experience of the transcendent, but they don't want to be told how to live. So they want spirituality without morality. Another example that this preacher gave. He said, walking into a church, a tract was given out by this church that if you come to our church, you'll get no mystical experiences. All you'll get is what the Bible says you ought to be doing in your life. That is exactly the opposite. Come to us and we will give you morality without spirituality. Now let me tell you, the Bible knows no such dichotomy. The Bible knows no such division like that. Because what you have in here is this passage is a complete, full theology of Christian experience. In other words, a true spirituality that leads to a transformed life. So neither spirituality without morality, but neither just buck up, try harder, do better without a spirituality. The Bible is one giant both and. Not just to know that there is a God, but to experience God. Intimacy with God. Not just to know about Him, not just to know about that love, but to experience that love. To be comforted by that love. To be transformed by that love. Jonah chapter 3 records the narrative of the citizens of Nineveh coming to experience God. See, Jonah the prophet, previously disobedient from God, after experiencing God's deliverance, is now on mission, now obedient. Maybe his heart's not in it, but he goes to the big city to proclaim and to deliver the message God has given him. The result, of course, does not shock Jonah. I think he was expecting it. What happens? God broke into their lives in a powerful, mighty way, bringing salvation and revival to this pagan Gentile city. We want to look at this morning, what are the marks of spiritual transformation? How do we experience spiritual awakening, spiritual transformation? My proposition to you is this. To experience transformation, to truly experience God, we need to continually, as Christians, rediscover the basic truths of the gospel. It's amazing. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, talk about Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he says, just as you received Christ as Lord. Think about this. When did you receive Christ as Lord? When you first became a Christian. We receive Christ as Lord and Savior. He writes, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him. This means that the simple and yet all too challenging truth of the Christian life, of sanctification, if you will, is we grow in Christ the way we first came to Christ. 
by cultivating and remembering the riches of the gospel. Do you realize you never get beyond the gospel? I know you would like to go on to the 201 class, the 301 class, and the 401 class, and I frustrate you. I get it, because I keep bringing you back to the 101 class. Because that's what the Bible teaches. That we grow in Christ by learning to cultivate the glorious riches of the gospel. You will never get past or beyond the gospel. So what does that involve? This text teaches us that involves three things. Experiencing transformation means you need to be alarmed to your danger, awakened to change, and alive to grace. Another way to put it, there's bad news and then there's good news. You ever notice that every text of the Bible kind of works out that way? That there's bad news and there's good news. You need to be alarmed to the danger, awakened to change, and alive, alive to grace. And these are the truths you need to continually cultivate in your life. This is the discipline. You want application? This is the discipline you need to learn. Look with me at verse 4. You need to be alarmed to the danger. Verse 4 says, jo Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not a whole lot to that gospel presentation, right? Pretty simple, clear, and direct message. In 40 days, judgment is coming. Very real, very concrete, very direct. Right to the point. Jonah begins with judgment. See, too often, and I do this, I struggle with this, we tend to, if we witness it all, to skirt the issues. We want people to like us. We don't want to be rejected. So we fail to confront them with the very basic truth that God is holy, we are sinful, and God will judge sin. God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, which means that in our natural state, God is too pure to look upon us. And He will judge sin. We need to tell people directly that they are in danger. It's part of loving them. Very real spiritual danger. We have to tell them that they have sinned. They've rebelled against God. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the living God, the fountain of living water. You've turned from God. You've taken control of your own life. You've taken your life into your own hands. You do what is right in your own eyes. That is our nature. Every one of the, what are we, over 7 billion on the planet right now, and we wonder why it looks like there's chaos and anarchy? What all, and you think no one has anything in common? Let me tell you what all 7 billion of us have in common. We all do what's right in our own eyes. We all think we're God. We all think we know best. We eliminate God from our lives or we make God out into our image. We create a God in our image and we think, why doesn't he love us? Why doesn't he cooperate with us? Because God is God and there is no other. Probably the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil in American history on this topic was the one by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Now listen to how Jonathan Edwards, and he was used as an instrument of God to bring awakening to New England in the 18th century. Listen to these powerful and sobering words from him. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. He writes, consider the fearful danger you were in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath. I would say this sermon by Edwards sums up the message proclaimed by Jonah to the Ninevites. Whether Jonah spoke only this line we have recorded for us in verse 4, or this was a summary of a further message, we have no idea. We don't know. But we do know the effect it had on his listeners. We do know that God used it to wake them up, to spiritually awaken them to their true spiritual condition. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentator writes, they saw the reality of God's judgment and a total reversal took place in their thinking. Instead of complacency and indifference, their hearts were stirred to pray, God be merciful to me, a sinner. They were alarmed to the danger. That's the first point. That's the first step in spiritual transformation. Look what else. They were awakened to change. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How did the people respond? They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. The king rose from his throne. Notice the urgency here. They see their sin. They see their danger. They respond. There's no apathy here. There's no complacency here. They have the sense they're in trouble. The king rises from his throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, sits down in dust, issues a decree, a proclamation for everyone, including the animals, to urgently call out to God. He tells them, change their lifestyle, turn from their evil ways, and maybe God will be merciful and restore us. Now, isn't it interesting? Have you noticed we've been contrasting from the beginning of our study of the book of Jonah, the contrast between Jonah, who represents Israel, the people of God, 
and the pagan Gentiles who shouldn't know any better. You have a contrast between God's chosen people and the pagan Gentiles. See, here are the pagan Ninevites who have no history regarding the knowledge of God responding as God's chosen people have been called to do in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. The covenant charter in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. You don't see that from Jonah or Israel. Who do you see that from? The pagan Ninevites, the Gentiles. What are they doing? They are humbling themselves. What's the point of sackcloth and ashes? Don't get hung up on the details. The point is they are humbling themselves. They are turning from their evil ways. They are repenting. They are seeking the face of God. Now what do we learn about this and how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we bring this home a little bit? See, what is repentance anyway? Genuine repentance is not just regretting our sin. Genuine repentance is not just being sorry for sin. It involves that, but it's genuine heart change. It is a turning from sin, which means there needs to be a turning to something so that we're not just aiming for behavioral change or becoming moralists. See, it's easy to slip into thinking that repentance just means I better shape up and fly right. I did wrong, and now I'm repenting. I'm doing right. Friends, repentance is not shaping up and flying right. If that's all it was, think about what God's Word says about our good works. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, your good works. That means your best shaping up and your best flying right. The very best you can offer God is like filthy rags in His sight. The very best we have to offer. If this was only about moralism, only about doing better, only about behavioral change, the best it is is a filthy rag. But the bottom line is it has to be with a view to God's mercy. See, this is the importance of verse 9 in our narrative. See, verse 5 told us that they believed God. Don't miss out on the detail. Verse 9 opens up the possibility of hope in the grace and mercy of God. It says the hope is in divine mercy when they express, maybe God will relent of his fierce anger. There's acknowledgement of his anger, recognition that there is nothing they can do to avert it, but there's also hope that perhaps God will be merciful. God doesn't help those who can help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps those who are at the end of themselves and say, I can do nothing. I'm at the end of my rope. That's what it means to die to yourself. We talked about Jonathan Edwards' illustration of holding a spider over a fire, over the pits of hell. Martin Luther and Erasmus once had a debate in the history of the church on the nature of grace. And Erasmus said to Luther, grace is like a toddler learning to walk in between his two parents. 
And the parents are encouraging them. Come on over here. Come on over here. You can do it. You can do it. And they're offering help. And Luther said, Erasmus, Erasmus, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. That's not what grace is. Grace is like you are a caterpillar in a ring of fire. What can a caterpillar do to get out of that ring of fire? It needs a hand to come from above and to rescue it. And that's the third mark of spiritual transformation is we must become alive to grace. Now friends, you are only as alive to grace as you are alarmed. I hope in some way that you've been shocked a little bit by the danger of God's judgment and awakened to actually turn from your not just the behaviors of sin, but the sin underneath the sin, the sin of you doing what is right in your own eyes, of you thinking you are autonomous and in control. I hope you're awakened to that has to change so that you see and become alive to and galvanized by and thunderstruck by the enormity of the grace of God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, had, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 9 says, this is their look at mercy. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, this is a difficult couple of verses to look at. And we need to recognize, a lot of times we can say, hmm, does this look like, from one perspective, it looks like our action determines or causes God's response? That is not the case. We need to recognize, and commentators are so good at pointing out how language works in the Scriptures, that the nature of Scriptural language is when God speaks to us in His Word, He is accommodating to our weakness. I love how John Calvin put it. God's truth is accommodated to our capacity as finite creatures. God talks to us in baby talk. That is such an important principle for us to understand. So what does it mean when we say God relented of the disaster? In the original, the Hebrew means that God had a change of heart towards something or someone. His stance, his posture changed. Not, see, we're used to, again, putting things in emotional sense. That's not how God's Word works. It means turning from one comportment to another. A comportment of wrath to a comportment of favor. And see, how is it that he can turn from his anger and stand toward us in favor and love? We need to recognize what this means and what this is pointing to. Again, we need to see in looking at the context of the whole Bible that Jonah is pointing to the greater Jonah who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus was the spider who instead of being hung over the pit of God's wrath, went all the way under and took God's wrath in our place 
as our substitute. We need to see this principle throughout all of Scripture. It is redemption and reconciliation through substitution. Jesus did not die as our example. Jesus died as our substitute. The theologian, I'm going to teach you a 64,000 word. See, you can impress your friends at lunch today. The $64,000 word is propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. Jesus was that sacrifice. He was that spider who went into the pit of hell, bearing the wrath of God that turned God's wrath into His favor. That the comportment, the stance, the attitude of God towards us now, because Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. He has taken upon Himself. He substituted Himself for you. Stood in the gap, became like you, was treated like you, and took upon Himself the judgment and wrath of God so that you get the smile of God. You get the favor of God. We're the caterpillar in the ring of fire that Jesus scooped up, picked up out of the fire, by taking the fire upon Himself. He endured the fire of God's wrath so that we will never have to. Friends, let me ask you this question. Do you believe God is smiling upon you this morning? Not based on your circumstances. Some of us are going through utterly difficult circumstances. God's smile is not based on how you're doing. God's smile is not dependent upon your circumstances. God's smile is totally dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ as your substitute. And the only way we're going to grow in Christ is if we are tethered to that reconciliation through substitution. We have to preach that to ourselves, beat that into our heads, cultivate that. That is theology 101, 201, 301, 401, a billion and one. That is what we need to learn. That is what, let me tell you something about your heart. That is what you resist with every ounce because that's the sin nature. The sin nature within you wants to say, okay, I better get my act together. We even look at good things like reading the Bible and prayer and worship and, and fellowship and these things as means to get God's grace rather than nutrients to feed us with His grace. If you are in Christ, you have all the grace. He will never love you any more or any less than He does right this minute. He will never love you any more or any less than even when you're committing your greatest sin. Yes, I dared to say it. And no, I'm not encouraging you to sin. I'm just going, it is not your righteousness, it is not your obedience, it is not your shaping up and flying right that determines God's favor and stance upon you. It is the work of Jesus Christ substituting Himself for you. And it is only to the degree as a congregation that we are made alive to that grace, that that grace will overflow out into the community that we will want everyone around us to experience that grace. We will, because we've been alarmed at the danger, want to love people well enough to help them be alarmed to the danger. 
We want to be awakened to our need that we want to love people enough that we want to see them awaken to their need for change. And we want to be alive to grace that we, what we will want for our family and our neighbors and our friends and Lake Oconee is to be alive to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the satisfaction of our sins, whose sacrifice satisfies God's justice so that we forever can stand for all eternity in the light of His smile and favor. Let's pray. Father, oh, help us to not get beyond Christ. It is so tempting to always want to go deeper and go further when what we need to know are the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. So, Lord, I pray that we will never get beyond Christ. As Paul said, I resolved when I came to the church at Corinth to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Oh, may our lives be tethered to the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close out our service singing, To God Be the Glory.
now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.